Hey everyone, today we're going to be having a heavy discussion about mental health. If you are suffering with any of the issues that we mentioned in this episode, please reach out for help. On the 2nd of April, a Sunday night, Jesse and I were trying to record a podcast and midway through that podcast episode, I just froze up. I can't explain why. Jesse didn't know why, but I couldn't come back. Normally, if I sort of have a moment, I can bring myself back, get back into the flow, but I just couldn't get back into it. So we just packed up and a little bit later we went to sleep. And at about 3 a.m. that morning, I was waking up by Jesse who said, hey, the doorbell just rang. And I go, what? And he's like, the doorbell just rang twice. And so he he said, I'm going to go get the door. And I said, I'm coming with you. And so we went downstairs and Jesse opened the door and there was a police officer standing at the door. And he apologized for waking us at that hour. And he said that he was actually looking for me. And I said, yep, that's me. And the police officer informed me that my dad had passed away. And in that moment, what I felt was like a cold knife to the gut. My gut just went ice cold. And there's a strange lucidity in a moment like that. Like I can remember all of it so vividly. Um, I, I, I went straight into shock and I just sat down and the police officer tried to give us some logistical information, but we just stopped him and we said, look, we have to go. So we ran upstairs, Jesse grabbed his keys um, and we started heading home. I just remember walking down the stairs and I said to Jesse, my mouth is so dry. And Jesse said, yeah, me too. And we just, <laughs> we just got in the car and started driving um, home. And Jesse lives about 40 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes away from my house. So that was one of the most difficult well, that was the most difficult drive of our life. Um, I can't believe Jesse managed to get us home. Um, and the whole way down the highway, down the M5, I could just feel two things happening. The first was my blood pressure dropping um, and my body wanting to pass out. And the second thing was my gut churning and me wanting to throw up. And the whole car ride home was just... just for 40 minutes straight as well as gently urging Jesse to drive faster. <laughs> and I was driving, should I say, illegally fast, <laughs> pretty fast. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You couldn't get home quickly enough. Yeah. And when you're 45 minutes away from a tragedy like that, you need to get there in the click of a finger, yeah. not in 45 minutes, you know? So I, um, on the way I had called my one of my cousins who's like a sister to me and she was at my house and I just remember her picking up the phone 
And she just said to me in this breathless voice, she just said, I'm so sorry, Danica, I'm so sorry. And I just said to her, like, we're on our way. We're on our way. Um, and that was it. And so we're driving and driving and driving. And let me jump in here. Before we got in the car, um, we grabbed our phones and we had our phones on airplane mode because we were asleep. After we took our phones, got in the car, we put them off airplane mode, message after message, missed call after missed call. I got missed calls on Messenger, Instagram, phone calls, yeah. texts. Me too. Everyone had tried to get in touch with me from your family. From and every different family member. Yeah. And, and I actually had grabbed my, like I had grabbed one of our phones um, when the doorbell rang to see what time it is. And I had seen a missed call from that same cousin. Mm. So in the back of my mind, I thought that, she had been in an accident or something. So when uh, I thought when I answered the door, she would be there anyway. So the closer we got to home, the more panic was setting into my system, the more sick I began to feel, um, the more of this ice coldness settled into my gut. And I remember reaching my street and just seeing that there were, um, a lot of police cars around and as I pulled into my driveway it's a long driveway and we use the garage door as our main door so my first thought was I need to get straight into the house get to my mom and so as we pulled around the corner I pressed the garage key to start opening the garage and the first thing Jesse and I saw was my dad lying on the floor of the garage, surrounded by police officers. And I instinctively closed the garage again really, really quickly, but that was it. It had just been, it was like a, I don't know, like a really definitive moment. Like, yeah, there he is. Like there he is. We see it now. And as we opened the garage door, it must have gotten almost halfway and there was about eight different police officers standing around the garage and they were motioning us like, no, no, close the garage, close the garage, close the garage. Because it still um, was under investigation by the yeah. police. Yeah. So Jesse, I don't even think he had stopped the car and I had run out of the car and inside my house. And I remember running into my lounge room and again, that strange lucidity. I can just see myself walking into the lounge and seeing the look on each of my family members' faces and the faces of my neighbours who were there as well. I've never seen a look of such utter defeat and despair on anybody's face ever. And I just just went straight to the couch. I threw my, my phone on the floor and just, you know, sat with my mum and um, waited in quietness and were we talking at that point we had all sat around each other you and your mum were just bawling your eyes out everyone in the room was crying I don't remember crying was I crying at yeah, that point yeah you exploded with tears yeah uh-huh. you did yeah and um there were about five police officers scattered throughout the house as yeah. well just, you know, one's on a walkie-talkie, one's on a notepad. There were police officers yeah, everywhere just walking the, the in and out of my house. Because that's their job, you know, they were yeah. doing their job. And um, every five or ten minutes, one of them would come up and say something or 
Ask for something. Ask for something. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, it was regular check-ins from them and then families mourning in the living room. Not even mourning. At that point, it was just absolute shock. horror and yeah. shock. And Mostly like, we were like just sitting there nightmare. in dead silence. And just... it, this was 3.45 in the morning. Yeah. And people had been there for an hour or two before we even got there, right? Yeah. So we got there late because our phones were on airplane mode and we were quite a while away. When we got there, there was already at least 10 to 15 different people there from your, from your family, including your neighbors. And um, it just was the most, it was a shock. Everyone was tired, but then it was also like, I had to keep myself from like collapsing. There was moments like that where yeah. it's like, how do you process all of that at once? Yeah, it's just because profound. what had happened is that I had said goodbye to my mom and dad at around 3 p.m. in the afternoon and headed to Jesse's house. Um, and that night after my mom went to bed, my dad took his own life. And when my mom woke up in the middle of the night around one and didn't feel him in bed next to her, um, she went and started searching for him and she found him. And she frantically tried to reach everybody, including us, but everybody's phones were in do not disturb or silent or airplane mode. And so she got in touch with my neighbors they were over in an instant, um, but it was too long, you know, too long for her to be running frantically and screaming. and um, Let alone being alone as well. Yeah. She was the only one around. She was the only one around. And slowly my family started to, you know, one of them answered their phones and then they started to get in touch with each other. And Jesse and I were the last ones to hear about it because we were unreachable. Mm. Um, and that's why they had to send a police officer. So we were just sitting in shock. Um, and it, it was, it was a, a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I've just, I, I can't explain that space. And around maybe four in the morning, um, a police officer came in and told us that we would, we were able to go and, and see my dad. And so we all went into the garage and they had covered him with a blanket and I remember walking in and pulling the blanket down over his face. And I, I, I've seen quite a few bodies in the past. I, I've lost a few family members. I've lost some close family members. And I've, I've seen bodies outside of funeral homes and in coffins. And I've been around that before. But when I saw the look on my dad's face... I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to grab him and to hold him and to kiss his face and to touch his head. But when I saw the look on his face, I couldn't even bring myself to put my hands on him because I have never seen such a look of pain and anguish ever before in my life. And that image is burned into my mind. You and everybody. Yeah. From that point onwards, you know, we sat with him for as long as we were able to. And then the coroners arrived to, to take his body away. We had about 15 minutes. And then 
everyone went back inside and then we had been offered a second opportunity to go and spend time with him as well. Yeah. As he was just there on the floor. Like oh, yeah, he, he was there for a while and I came back inside because I just, yeah, I just couldn't. It's It was hard. Like what Danica said, the look of pain on his face was so hard to look at. It just looked like it wasn't an easy passing. Yeah. Um, and everyone, every one of your family members came outside or came into the garage to go and sit with him. And we all cried and screamed and wailed as much as we could. And it was really, really hard to not only be dealing with whatever we were individually dealing with, but then to be dealing with it as a collective as well. And um, everyone has their own way of consoling or... Some people went straight to anger. Some people went straight into shock. Some people were just quiet. Mm -hmm. People who aren't usually quiet were quiet. Some people were screaming and some people were just, you know, tearing off on the side and couldn't look too much. Um, all the all the reactions were quite diverse. Yeah. You're not supposed to see the body of someone you love lying on the garage floor. With that kind of look out their face. Lifeless, yeah. In the middle of the night. You're not supposed to, you know, you know, it's not supposed to be like that. Jesse sat with dad for a while, alone even, when everyone else went inside. Yeah, I came outside a second time and... Because this was your first major loss and the first in, time you've seen a body? In, yeah, in human form. I lost a pet who I was extremely close with. Um but yeah, even then, I was overseas when they did the burial and when the, my, my beautiful dog passed. I wasn't there. Um, but that was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body. Ever, ever, ever. Um, at least in real life, you know. And when we opened the garage and we had that glimpse of him on the floor and the police officers were motioning us to close it, Danica, actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you said you said to me, I'm sorry you had to see that. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, because you know that I'm particularly sensitive. I used to, even hearing you work in the cadaver labs for your anatomy classes at uni, uh, even hearing you explain that stuff, I was grossed out just yeah. by you talking about it. Let alone, you know, could I have done that if I was there? I don't know. Maybe not because, I don't know. It's just a thing for me. And then <laughs> we saw, once we saw him on the floor in the garage, I, I said to myself, I'm like, I need to need to work on this. I need to make peace with this. This is a human, you know, who I loved dearly and whose soul I still love. This is something I want to work on. So I took my time, when everyone was away, I took my time to go and sit with him and just talk yeah. and give him a hug. That's what I did. I gave him a big hug. Yeah. I'm really glad you had that time. I've always found that time really valuable with someone's vessel. I just couldn't do it with dad. You had to honor the vessel. And for you, you could feel that you could see the and feel I, the pain. The pain was just it was petrified immense. into his vessel. It was all just there. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So, yeah, eventually the coroners arrived. Yeah. And just for people who don't know, because I didn't know this at all. Oh, neither did we. A coroner is a contractor where, uh, who handles the body after it's immediately deceased so a lot of the time if it's if someone's passed away at home 
or if it's a special case like a murder or a suicide um, the coroner will be involved and it would be treated as a full crime scene so there'll be interviews investigations forensics and all of that kind of jazz yeah Yeah. so (laughs) um, the coroner took my dad away at about five in the morning and that's when it all just kicks kicks in you know um no one slept no so nobody yeah so there was no sleep for anyone it all just began so quickly calling the funeral director calling the priests calling family news spread around the world faster than you can imagine and when somebody passes in our culture your home becomes an open home for people to just come and go and so close family members started arriving and we the funeral director came through pretty early we tried to get some you had a connection so they were able we had connections yeah so we tried to you know make some tea and whoever felt like drinking some tea had some tea i think my mum tried to have some tea and crackers and then just went and threw it all up in the bathroom she couldn't keep down she couldn't keep anything down at least a day or two yeah um and not just her she was just having like not just her a few of your family members had similar situations where they couldn't keep food down for days yes um and so having just gone through that and not having slept and and then all of a sudden having to like sit down with the funeral director and choose a coffin and choose some flowers and pay make and make and, the pam and like yeah, choose a poem and like do all of this kind of stuff was just just so surreal like you've not had a moment to process but you need to get this stuff moving and this was the sunday before the easter weekend so not easter sunday but the sunday before so if we didn't hustle we would not be able to even book in a funeral until the week after and so one of my cousins works in the industry and we called everybody we could to try and schedule in a funeral a cremation and we managed to do that and so then all the prep starts not only for the funeral but like preparation for having people come through the house and having family members flying in from New Zealand and the States. Um, Fiji, Fiji was really difficult because you can't get visas from Fiji really easily but we had some – I think we had a few distant relatives fly in from Fiji. So organizing all of that and, you know – the people start trickling in and for the next, so, so that was the Monday. We didn't sleep until maybe midnight that night. Yeah. And then we had constant company as well. People were coming and going. Some people stayed here for days. Yeah. Some people, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't leave your side. Yeah. You know? So from that night onwards, you will have family members, extended family members, family, friends, friends coming through and bringing food mainly and flowers (laughs) and people just coming and going coming and going coming and going and and my mum was just we were all exhausted but like it's helpful you know to have that community showing up and refusing to leave you alone so the Tuesday the Wednesday started to be funeral prep finding photos, scanning photos, slideshows, speeches, logistics, and the, and in amongst all of this, me 
desperately, desperately trying to communicate with the coroner's office to get my dad's body processed so he can get to his own funeral, which was a whole other ball game altogether. And to add to that, though, organizing the funeral, organizing who's going to do what, organizing, you know, a slideshow, organizing music, all these little logistical things that you don't think you'd really need to worry about when someone so dear to you passes. You didn't get a second to process because you're having to organize, you know, stuff for yourself, but for everyone else, for the entire event. Because my my mom and a lot of her sisters and brothers like did not have the capacity to organize anything to do with the funeral because they were too busy. Like my mom was out of it, out of it. And then my aunties and uncles were either supporting her or helping manage the household, which means um, cooking, cleaning, serving guests, opening doors, closing doors, opening gates, closing gates, like making tea. And like when I say there's people coming in and out of the house, I mean, in the first week after my dad passed, we may have had about 500 people come in and out of the house. I'd say more. Like I counted close to 150 on just one of the days. One of the days alone. How one day, maybe 250. So yeah. Yeah. So that means that everyone who was there was there for a number of hours and sometimes yeah. they come by after work. So yeah. it's dinner time. They, you know, Most they, of the close get, family members didn't go to work that they, whole yeah, week. Yeah. 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 But then the ones who did or relatives would, would come after work that they'd, they'd have something to eat here. They'd have some tea over here. Um, there was always um, food and drink for them here, which is amazing. But you and your mom had nothing to do with that. That was the amazing army, the family members who yeah. would come in. They assume ownership over your kitchen, which yeah. is so lovely. And they just treat it like it's their own and, and prepare food. And they walk around serving tea and yeah. they just completely took care of everybody. Yeah. It was it was like watching an army go to work, yeah. go to war and go to work at the same time. It was just, it was amazing. The amount of support and all the little different ways they did. It was, it was fascinating. Yeah. So by Tuesday night and Wednesday, I had sort of started locking myself away in the room because I couldn't ha- I couldn't handle interacting with guests and being constantly asked how I was. I just had to plan this funeral. And by Wednesday, the day before the funeral, we had just scraped by with getting my dad's body released from the coroners. We, we managed to give the funeral house so little notice and they made so many exceptions for us. Um, and, you know, there was like a few key family members, like a, like one of my main cousins was overseas, somebody who could have really helped bring the funeral together. Um, so, you know, it was really exhausting. Like I can't stress enough how exhausting it was to bring this funeral together and, you know, contacting people to give speeches and contacting people that you've forgotten to tell about my dad's passing, his workmates and all of these, yeah, making sure people know about the funeral details and making posts on social media so people get the word out. And so we had the funeral on Thursday. And on Thursday morning, I decided that I was going to speak at my dad's funeral. And I wrote the speech that morning and I had an atrocious headache. I actually started getting really sick on the Wednesday. On Thursday, it kind of settled in. But I was like, I don't have a choice. You were sick for like two weeks. That was just the start of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I just dozed up at Nurofen and Panadol and whatever else and, um, you know, made our way to the cemetery. Um, very surreal experience showing up there with all of my family and friends. And even then, like, 
the funeral was poorly directed. So I was running around like an absolute madman trying to, I, I, I basically directed the funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my little cousin basically directed this whole entire funeral, which is just too much. But the funeral was a lot. You also had one of your cousins come through as the host, which was great. He helped a lot. Oh, I mean, everybody, yeah, everybody did He helped you with the directing there, which was really nice. You know, he was coordinating people and handling the microphone, introducing speeches. And he did a great job. And he had just gotten home from Africa like less than a day ago. Yeah. And you were like, hey, your uncle has passed away and you're you're hosting the funeral. He's like, cool, no worries. (laughs) Cool, no worries. And I I don't know what we're doing and I've got no run sheet for you. Yeah, that's all good. We'll figure (laughs) it out. He'll make it work. He's just that kind of guy. He made it work so great. He made it work so well. So the funeral happened. There was a lot of people, a lot of grief. Uh, it was heavy, you know, because I've like, I I compare this to my grandma's funeral a few years ago. My grandma passed in the most peaceful way possible and all the rituals surrounding her passing and even the funeral, like there was so light, there was so light, you know, just bathed in white light and everything went so smoothly and so perfectly. Sounds like a dream of a passing. And then I, it was like all what we always ever wanted for her. That's so sweet. And then I think of my dad's passing and there was just so much darkness. Chaotic. Frantic. Chaos. Frantic. Agonizing. Just scraping in. Just scraping by. Because I think that when somebody takes their own life... I know that when somebody takes their own life, it's a different ball game for everybody involved. It's just a different ball game. It's no part of it is easy and no part of it is smooth. And, and there's just a complete lack of acceptance, not because you, you don't want to accept it, but you can't. It's, I mean, the first thing I said was grieving and then grieving suicide no one has the tools for the second one. No. You know, no one, no one's taught that. Yeah. Um, there's been lots of helpful information out there from like government services and stuff. We'll but get, I'll get to that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. But yeah, just wanted to say like, nobody has those tools. You know what I mean? Like that's just a, a peculiar thing. You never think you'd need it until you need it. Yeah. And then <laughs> you find it somehow, hopefully yeah. go on. But anyway, so the day of the funeral um, in our culture, as soon as the funeral ends, we cremate the body, go straight into the fire. So Jesse was with me for that. And we took my dad's body into the cremation room. We said our, you know, we all said our final goodbyes, which even were rushed. We barely got a second with the body on that day. Um, and, you know, he just gets thrown into the fire. Mm. And that's such a crazy moment because that is the moment where you know they're gone like yes they've passed a few days ago but you know like oh my dad's at the coroner's office and we're trying to get my dad's body and then my my dad's the funeral my dad's in his coffin like my dad's once that fire starts burning that's it there's nothing left on this earth of that person the vessel is severed the vessel the cord is severed the cord is severed and the vessel is no more Nothing to contain his spirit, nothing to remind you. And so I don't even remember the rest of the day after that. It was an exhausting day. Um, But the day after that, 
we normally we have two weeks of rituals in, in, in our Hindu culture, um, or three days of rituals, but we decided to just do only one day because, um, my dad was not a man of God, at least not at that point in his life. He had rejected God, the, the notion of God. And all religion. And all religion and anything to do with it. So, you know, he always, he never wanted anything. He, if we're up to him, we'd throw him in the trash. But he actually had specifically requested that at some point. Yes. It's <laughs> like, if I die, just throw me in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> he literally said Frank that. Frank Reynolds moment. But, Which is, um, yeah, exactly like Frank from Sony. But... You know, we wanted to honor him and do the rituals so or do some rituals. Um, and what's really interesting about my dad not being a man of God is that his passing coincided with Ramadan, the Jewish festival Pesach, which is called Passover in English. So called Passover. And traditionally, timing. it's like an open period of time where souls are known to pass. Yes. Over, those eight right? days. Yeah. Well, well, the symbolism comes from. Um, when God was going to give people the plague in that village, um, they would pass over the Jews. So the Jews actually put, I think, goat's blood on their door yeah. so, the, so that God knew, hey, this is a Jewish household. I'm, I'm going to pass over it and inflict harm on you know, all the houses that don't have uh-huh. that, that, um, the blood on it. But see. I also heard something about that period of time where people are known to die. I Somebody think, mentioned I think, well, something. Well, well, my mom lost some people um, who were close to her. Around Passover, yeah. Um, so, so it was. It did line up with that, but I, I think there is something about. It. To be honest, I don't know. Doesn't matter that Doesn't much matter. about it. Um, so it coincided with Ramadan, Pesach, Easter, and then my dad's funeral fell on the day of Hanuman Jayanti, which is Hanuman, the monkey god's birthday, and also Ramdas's birthday. And Ramdas is a very prominent guru in. The world, but also, you know, Jesse's main main man. Yeah, he and, was, yeah. And also a very prominent guru in my life as well. So I um, cried for days when Ram Dass passed. Yeah, so he passed on the 6th. Hanuman Jayanti was on the 6th. And my dad's funeral was on the 6th. So that was interesting. <laughs> and um, for someone who was so anti-God to go, to go on that day, it was just... If it was the next day or like a week later... you. You know, it would have been kind of the way he wanted. But how holy of a day could he have picked? Yeah. <laughs> Think about it. And in amongst all of this chaos and grief and stress and exhaustion, my family and I um, going through PTSD, like genuinely having crazy symptoms. My mom, uh, you know, several family members just vomiting, not being able to take down food, Um my mom not being able to sleep, certainly not being able to sleep alone, let alone be alone. Um, family members from the States had obviously made it already in time for the funeral, including my uncle from New Zealand. And um, yeah, it's like a really crazy period of time. Um, but my my dad was coming through for people. He was visiting people in dreams, visions, waking states. He was saying words laying his hands on people's shoulders, giving messages. Um, and this is something that surrounds death. That's like a really fascinating part of the process that the veil is so thin that in the days and weeks leading up to a passing and also the days and weeks following a passing, there's crossovers. If you're open 
you can feel and you can see. And even if you're not, sometimes you feel and you see. So I've made, actually made a list of all the people who had dreams and encounters with my dad after he passed. And it's ridiculous. It's like over 10 people, yeah. which is crazy. Uh, and I had my own where I was just falling asleep one day and um, I, I felt him like walk up to me, like really purposefully walk up to me, grab my shoulders, give me a kiss on the cheek, like a firm kiss on the cheek. And then that was it. Um, so just little things like that, you know, but yeah. So, you know, the veil is thinning and even though we're having, I mean, so where am I up to? Like he's being cremated. Okay. But like up until that point, because you have literally your whole family around you, my whole family and friends all around us, there are moments of joy and laughter and hilarity and silliness and play. Like there are moments that it's just such a crazy space of polarity, intense, intense dichotomy. You'll have the most painful sorrow you've ever experienced in your entire life but then you'll have moments with your family where you're just playing and laughing and laughing and laughing and it wasn't just you know me and my cousins and Jesse and stuff it was also like my mum and her brothers and sisters like some nights would be in the room trying to plan the funeral and they would be laughing so loudly in the lounge room that they're screaming they're like it's almost (laughs) scary it sounds like there's a party outside it sounds like there's a party and (laughs) and and you know some nights we would be talking and jesse would walk in mid-conversation and just hear all these ridiculous conversations and dirty jokes and you know jesse and i but also my entire family have quite a dark sense of humor Twisted and Twisted. silly and weird. And- yeah, I, I think it's the best sense of humor, but I'm not saying this was like how it was the whole time, but you have little moments scattered throughout this week of pain and darkness where you're just in this rapturous joy. And uh, It's actually really funny. I wanted to give a, a specific moment um, to paint a picture for people who don't know what you mean by that because you'll have a relative just hear the news and it happened two days ago and they break down. They drive straight here at six o'clock. They've just finished work. They're walking in. They run up to your mom. I'm so sorry. And they're, they're crying. And then they, as, as that lady's hugging your mom, there's you and your cousins and me laughing our asses off at something else on the other side of the room. And that polarity is insane. And they yeah. don't know that you spent six hours crying that yeah. day. But... You almost look like a psychotic freak. Yes. But that's what you're talking about, I yeah. believe, is like that image. It's, yeah. Sometimes it's not what you think it is. Yeah. and But you have to have that. Those were healing. Yeah. You have to retain your sense of self, your sense of connection and joy, because otherwise you lose it. You it cannot be doom and gloom all the time. And some people do process like that. I get it. But thankfully, most of my family are not like that. It's not that we're not processing, we're not crying and we're just moving on. Certainly not. But exactly what Jesse explained, there, there were exactly those moments where that same family member would then, you know, come to me and like try to hold me and cry, but I'd be too busy crying from laughter at whatever stupid thing we were laughing at in yeah, that moment. Yeah. And then an hour later, later I'll be back in my my hole of darkness. Yeah. So you, what be what has become such a value for me through this process, is capture the moment, 
capture the moment. When you're in that deep, dark sorrow, capture it and be with it. And when you're in that rapturous joy and play and connection, be with it and enjoy it and don't pull yourself out of it because you need, you need to be a certain way. So that's some advice I have for anybody who's moving through anything heavy at this point in time. Second thing I'll share, or should we come back to this? No, I say it. Second thing I'll share is that in those early days of grief and trauma, do whatever the frick your body wants to do when it wants to do it. So like, but also like make sure those vital processes keep occurring. Like for me, the biggest thing was you need to eat because you need to stay grounded especially when there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming in and out of the house. I'm very energetically sensitive. There are people hugging me, crying. My mom's crying and people are wailing and there's all of this happening around me. So I need, I eat to ground, but I don't want to eat because I feel sick because this, you know, I, I explained that the moment I heard the news that cold knife went into my gut to this day, my gut's not settled. I've, and it's been a month now. It's been a month now. I've stored all of this pain specifically and almost exclusively in my solar plexus region. I'm talking coldness, nausea, fluttering, cramping, like those early days of in those first like three, four days crying so hard that my abdominals cramp and then I cannot straighten myself. And now I'm in agonizing physical pain because my abdominals have cramped and that happening so often that now there's like a permanent ache in my abdominals from the amount that they've been cramped and strained from all the crying. Whereas for Jesse and my mom, it's in the heart space for them. It's been like heart palpitations and tightness and yeah, well actually this is a good time to bring in the symptoms that I've been experiencing. Um, and your mom's actually been experiencing similar, if not an amplified version of these. I keep thinking I hear the doorbell at two in the morning. So I'll wake up or if I'm awake, whatever reason, I'll literally hear it. And I'll walk downstairs and I'll look through the peephole and there's no one there. But that seems to me that my body's recreating the scenario in order for me to process the emotional impact of what I went through and what we're going through still. Fascinating, right? But it does typically feel like a heaviness in the heart for me. Um, I don't get any of the belly stuff. No, but was that from the moment you heard the news? You felt it in your heart? Yes, yeah, sinking That's what my mom feeling. said as well. Like, like um, you know where your sternum is? It feels like there's a gap in your sternum and like this whole region here is open and then it's exposed to like the cold oxygen. And that's sort of the sensation that I feel surrounding it. And it comes regularly, it comes yeah. up regularly. Sometimes I'll be in the middle of teaching a student and there it is again. Yeah. Um, but what you said before was such good advice. It's something I've been trying to, to push towards myself, which is be as present as possible. If it means you're feeling sad, be sad. If it means yeah. you're feeling happy, be happy. Yes, exactly. And another big thing for me has been, so like I said, like it's so important to take care of your vital processes, like whatever helps you sleep, sleep. But and whatever helps you sleep. I had so many of my family members drinking and then telling me to drink. Like just just have a couple of shots and go to bed, you know? Just just have a couple of shots. Like they're the best, I swear. Um, but for me, what is so weird is that I needed to eat, but I was not hungry because I was having all these gut issues and pains and sensations. So, and then also the general nausea about the whole situation. But then what I wanted to eat was either like junk food, like trashy stuff, like, um, like 
one day I bought myself a porto, which I'd been craving all that week. When on the Thursday, um, on the Friday, I finally got my porto. I'll tell that story later. And it was just like such a moment. And my families were bringing in like pastries and stuff. And I was just eating those snail pastries. Oh my God, those are so good. But like one of one family friend who came through just bought a bunch of sandwich making things. And I honestly, I hate cheese and tomato sandwiches. I've never in my life ordered or made myself a cheese and tomato sandwich ever in my life. But for some reason, for the first few days after my dad's passing, all I wanted to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner was cheese and tomato sandwiches. Because for some reason, that's all I could stomach. And that's all I was feeling like. And it's completely inexplicable. But in those moments, like that's what nourished me. So there's no explaining it. But you just got to do whatever you got to do to get by. Drink orange juice, eat donuts, eat fast food, like whatever it is you've got to do it. You've just got to let your body have it. Stop exercising, stop eating healthy and just be with it because it's such a whack space. It's too heavy to process that plus um, have your muscles try and repair themselves after a workout. It's just, it's too much. So you're in fight or flight and if you're not eating, then the goal is find yourself a way to get food into you again. Yeah. Even if it's pure comfort food, chips. One day me and Jesse just stood there after like a long <laughs> bout of doing funeral stuff, walked into the kitchen, tore open a bag of chips and was shoving it into our mouths by the fistful yeah. until the whole bag was finished. <laughs> just standing there with like another one of our cousins just sitting across from us, just looking at us kind of like... You guys gonna eat some food? Yeah. You, what are you doing? It's dinner time. Like, aren't you hungry? Can't you make? We're just, we're just like looking at the chips and looking at our hands and just fistfuls, literally shoveling, like actual shoveling. But that was joy and that was nourishment. That was joy. And those like, are good chips. Those are good chips too. We eat good chips. This ad is not sponsored. But. <laughs> no, my mind went there. Should as we do well. it? <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by Boulder Chips. The only chips not cooked in seed oils that cause heart problems. If you're... Boulder chips, avocado oil, crinkle cut chips. It's good stuff. If you're experiencing heartbreak, don't close your arteries with conventional sunflower or canola oil. Why don't you get some Boulder chips in your belly? They are delicious, crunchy. They taste just like regular chips, only they won't kill you. Boulder chips... Sold almost nowhere. Good luck finding them. <laughs> anyway, um, so the day after the funeral, we had the fire ritual. And I've been to, we call it a hawan. I've been to 300 hawans or more over the course of my lifetime. Um, so when the priest arrived, it was pouring down rain, absolutely pouring down rain. And a, a lot of the family come over, big, 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 big crowd for that. And, you know, people are cooking from early morning and whatnot. And the priest arrived and we had a chat to him and we just said, look, my dad was not a very religious man. We want to keep it really short and sweet. So just one hour, just a one hour hawan. And he said, yep, okay, I hear that. That's all good. So we all sat down. We prepared all the things for the rituals, heaps of ghee, um, rice with different spices through it. Explain and to people what ghee is. Ghee is like milk fat. Like it's like a butter, but. It's like if butter like a, and oil had a baby. Yeah, it's good shit. They um, put it on rice and they put they cook their roti in it. Yeah. And I mean, if I could eat it by the spoonful, I would. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. So um, 
and then you have like this big fire pit and everyone sits around it. And so this priest said to us, like, does anybody here not speak Hindi? Do you want me to translate into English? And we said, oh, yes, please. That'd be great. And he said, what did he say? He said, I'm sorry, please bear with me. My English is not good. I'll do my best to translate as much as I can. And then he proceeded to give the most beautiful ceremony whilst, you know, every 30 minutes just checking on the time and announcing we have 20 minutes left. We have 10 minutes left. And he had timed every every word to the to the minute, to the T, where he finished exactly on the hour. And he gave the most metaphysical, esoteric, deep and insightful. Yet ceremony. grounded, practical and also weaving scientific principles all, and information into all, there. All of it. it I've was, never seen I've never heard anything like it. It was it was it was like a spiritual lecture and he was explaining in English perfectly. I mean yeah. he had the accent, but I could understand every single word he said. And I actually sat there like I was in lecture mode. Yeah. Like absorbing. I was infatuated with the way he would phrase and word things and the perspectives and the way they perceive the soul and the way every offering was for a different reason to release a different worldly attachment and it was a marvelous experience it was really beautiful it was really special and 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 so we you know he reads from the sacred text and then we chant and then we sing and then we feed the fire and it's all about lighting this fire and feeding it and feeding it and feeding it and so it starts to burn I don't know exactly, but my understanding of it, or at least interpretation of it, is that it's burning away his worldly attachment so that his soul can travel on and into the next plane of existence. And we also had that fire ritual in the garage, which is where my dad, you know, took his own life. So I thought that was a really, really great way to cleanse and elevate the space, even though it's, you know, it's the best we can do. Um, And by the end of that ritual... Like towards the middle of it, it started torrential raining and cold wind was blowing. And then as the ritual finished, it became the brightest, most sunniest day ever. And not only that, but I looked out and I could see, because I live in this weird spot where when the weather's just right, there's always going to be a double rainbow. And I've seen so many throughout the last you know, 11, 12 years of living here. So I, I, we were sitting in the front lounge and I looked out and I go, there's going to be a rainbow. So I run into the backyard and sure enough, there was a double rainbow, but not only was it a double rainbow, it was the brightest rainbow that I have ever seen. And I actually captured it on camera and without a filter or anything, it is the brightest rainbow you will ever see. And so it was just a moment. And it was so close. Yeah. It was so close. We could have walked over and touched it. Yeah. It was a moment. Amazing. And so that kind of elevated the space. And then we had the weekend to just let things quieten, let some of those hundreds and hundreds of people filter out. And um, the kind of closing aspect to all of this was we had to wait over Easter weekend for everything to be processed. And we picked up my dad's ashes on Tuesday. And another surreal part of this process is carrying a little plastic container full of my dad. That is surreal. Holding this box that's like, that's all that's left of my dad. It's a plastic box about the size of two bricks. Like a couple of yoga blocks? Couple no, no, yoga or blocks. maybe like one and a half yoga blocks. Yeah, or something. about one and a half, but it's, it is rectangular. Yeah. And um, it literally is heavier than you think it is because yeah. it's full of bone. It's full of bone. And, and human bone and ashes, and, yeah. and um, 
Yeah, I, I just I didn't know what ashes typically get delivered in. Yeah. But I looked at that. You know what? You know what it reminded me of when construction work goes on. They have these plastic slash rubber like boxes surrounding the construction site that they put the sorry for the bumping of the mic they put the fence into it so that holds the fence yes they they put it sideways those orange things and they put the chain for the metal fences the metal fence like like sits inside yeah it's it's got that material same color almost the same size but a smaller version of that yeah and it was heavy and I'd never been around ashes before. So that was really yeah. interesting. I'd only ever collected my grandma's ashes before. And um, typically the males in the family scatter the ashes, but because we are non-traditional, um, I got to do that. Like the, me and my mom got to be there, my aunties, my cousins. So we, all the family members who wanted to be there all drove to a specific location and it took a little bit of finding to find the perfect spot, but what led me there was a couple of monarch butterflies fluttering around. And for me, butterflies are always there when the spirit passes over. Um, it's, it's a big symbol for me. So I knew that was the spot. And when we arrived at this river, there was nothing in it. There was nothing in the river. Like we were sitting by the water for a long time and I climbed into the water and I scattered the ashes and the method that I chose to do it took a little while, like maybe five minutes. Um, and that was like a really beautiful process. You know, we got to hold him in the ashes, say goodbye, open the ashes, see all of his little bits of bone, which was like really crazy, all ground up though, like thick, coarse sand. And then I was doing the ashes, put, putting it into the water, surrounded by ashes, crazy, crazy. You don't really ever think about what that's going to be like. And then it literally took quite a long time took a to while. get all the ashes because i didn't box. just pour it on top of the water um one of my uncles said submerge it and then and then just it. rotate yeah. it and start flushing it out and that's which actually way better i liked it yeah, that was way better because it, it takes a lot longer yeah. but none of it like flies away yeah it all just the wind can't take it yeah i don't know it, it, it doesn't leave a huge pile of white over the top floating of the, on the river yeah, yeah it, it just becomes one with the river that yes way. i really liked that as well so after scattering the ashes, we just sat there for a little while. And because they don't just all float away, like there's a lot of ash. So yeah. it just settles there and it's going to take sometimes yeah. a day or two to all rush away. Um, as we're sitting there, we start to see like some tadpoles swim over. And then soon there's like a hundred tadpoles and then 200 tadpoles. And we're like, oh my goodness. Like 200 tadpoles. Yeah. Like, wow, look look at, at all the little fish. Hundreds of little fish there. Yeah. And then we're just sitting and watching and then we're looking and then all of a sudden there's like 500 tadpoles and we're like, holy shit. At this point I was blown away. I was yeah. like, wow, they're all feasting or just hanging out. Hanging What's out. going on? Maybe they're eating some of my dad's ashes or something. I don't know. And then like more little fish start coming and then slightly bigger fish. And then like, Bigger fish start to come through. Big, like schools of big gray fish. Yes. Rocked up like about the size of your hand. And then I, and then I looked at this little thing floating in the water and I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's a jellyfish. And I'm like, I've never seen a jellyfish in the river. And then a little bit later, I'm looking in the distance and I'm seeing all these big things floating there. And I'm like, are those turtles? Like, oh my gosh, look at the size of those turtles coming, guys. Are they turtles? they're coming closer and closer and we're like wait a second those are jellyfish and 
at this point, my family kind of goes, oh, yeah, yeah, jellyfish. And then they start leaving. And I, th- I know that they were in a really difficult state of mind. Like they were not doing so well. They were very struck with grief and they just wanted to leave. It was a really beautiful location we were in, but we're just seeing all these jellyfish. And as we're looking, it's looking like there's more and more and more coming. So Jesse and I say like, all right, like you guys go, like we're going to stay here for a little bit longer. And as we're standing there, still very close to my dad's ashes, we see more and more and more jellyfish. And I'm talking, some of them are the size of my arm. Yeah, they're as big as a torso sometimes. And they were all different sizes, different colors. Some of them were small as my hand. Yeah. And they were Babies like... And grandparents. They were like a deep orange, kind of orangey red orange, color. Orange, red, even maroon. Yes. I feel like the bigger they were, the more likely they were to have that color. I don't know if that species of jellyfish has uh, different colors for different genders. And they were the ones with like the feathery kind of tentacles. Feathery tentacles, like Textured. three big triangular circular shaped Three or four, tentacles. yeah. And again, like we didn't know that jelly. I don't even personally. I didn't know jellyfish could be found in rivers yeah. at all. But apparently, this river connects to the ocean, so that as makes they sense. all do, as they all do. But um, I had never even seen this species of jellyfish. I'd seen the little sort of see-through translucent ones. And Jesse and I snorkel a lot, and we've been to multiple rivers and lakes and swimming holes throughout Australia. Yeah. And never in my life have I seen this many jellyfish, even in the ocean, let alone this size, let alone hundreds. Hundreds. And when we spotted it about five meters from us, we saw a round blob. We go, oh, that's that's a turtle. But then, and this is the interesting thing, they all started coming towards us. Yeah. Like they, not swimming down river. No, they were Sideways coming, to yeah. the riverbank where... My dad's ashes and yeah. Jesse and I were. Where you could even stand up. If yeah. you stepped over the rocks and jumped in, it would probably be about hip height. Yeah. And they came closer and closer and closer. And I had this moment where it just felt like nature was rewarding and dancing around and applauding the fact that... Celebrating. And celebrating the ashes. Yeah. It was just such a profound... And honestly... One of the most beautiful nature experiences I've ever had in my life. Agreed. And to have it happen in such an occasion was insane. Jesse I just and can't I believe were, it. We were confused. Gobsmacked. I'm yeah. Like, well, you guys want to leave? Do you see what's happening here? Yeah. I can't believe my family left Everyone's and didn't like, witness that. They're all hungry. It's lunchtime. They've been spent the whole day looking for a spot. Yeah. And they also have to go back to work sometime or whatever reasons they had. It's okay. But you and I were like, we're not leaving. And we witnessed something that I don't think we'll ever get to see ever again. Yeah. And it really felt like a celebration. And I don't know if it was like my dad's spirit soaring or if it was nature claiming his spirit or his vessel or both. There was butterflies fluttering around us and birds and seabirds. And and there was one bird that we had never even seen before. Yeah, just just behind us. We're like, what bird is that? And then there was a school of big silver fish that swam past and it just kept going and going and going. And we're just like, how long is this school of fish just swimming right past us and right past my dad's ashes? And the hour before that, we were standing around like getting ready to scatter the ashes and didn't see one creature in the river. Yeah. And we were looking. We were standing right there over the river. And, and I, I was like, looking for turtles and stuff because I'm always looking. Yeah. For but yeah. And now it's like National Geographic 
you know David Attenborough special David Attenborough special seriously <laughs> I couldn't believe it and and that was just another demonstration of the polarity of it of this period of time how like in amongst this absolute pit of darkness you can be beside this river on a glorious day sun streaming in and all of these jellyfish a half a meter from you blooping up against the rocks like almost trying to get to you like oh my god there was that one jellyfish that literally it was like came, out of the water yeah it came to, <laughs> it came to the wall we were standing behind the grass there was like a one layer of rocks and then if you stepped over the rocks you were in the river Literally, this one jellyfish came up to the wall that is lined with rocks and then came to the surface and yep. just was just like, hey, guys. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Like, I, I'm closing my eyes and I'm picturing it and I, it's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just kept saying, I wish I could get this on video, but there's no way I'm stepping away from this for a second to yeah. get my phone. I was like, nobody's going to believe this. Even the even the one or two minutes would have taken you to run to the car and grab your phone wasn't worth missing wasn't worth missing because it was a specific marvel and yeah because you'd never experienced it you don't know how long it's gonna no. go on for and you but just, it went on for like half an hour yeah it just yeah. wouldn't stop we, even we, when we left yeah it was still it happening. kept happening yeah and the fact that we got to experience that and then we did some research we thought to ourselves hey like what is the symbol of the jellyfish like what does the jellyfish symbolize uh, and we found a lot of different meaning, Interesting some stuff. very specific meaning. Yeah. If you're curious, Google symbol of the jellyfish, yeah. you'll find a lot on there. Um, and that's when I knew I had to drive straight to a porto and get myself that double fillet Bondi burger that I've been waiting for all week. Which should have really been triple fillet, let's be honest. I, I did think that, but I was very but satisfied. After your last bite, you were like, double fillet was fine. But next time, triple. Next time, triple. And I had to <laughs> eat fast food, but man, that was just, that was just. You know, it was medicine. So since that, things have just kind of slowly settled back into, no, not back into, they've slowly settled into whatever my life is now. Which we're still figuring out. Which we're still figuring out. It's confusing. It's surreal. I feel different. Life feels different. My home feels different because I, I live with mom and I used to live with mom and dad. And there are like, I can't look to the future and see certainty in any direction almost anymore. And my priorities feel different. Even I haven't been able to get back to my creative projects. Um, we haven't podcasted for a month. We haven't podcasted since, for a month. Yeah. Since we tried to podcast on the night of. And actually just a quick story about that. We were podcasting and as Danica mentioned at the beginning of this episode, uh, she went really quiet. All of a sudden, she just went really quiet. And this happens sometimes, not just to her, but to me. And I'm sure to other people who podcast as well. You might lose your train of thought or something, just need a break. Or maybe you're thirsty. Maybe you got to get up and pee or just something comes over you. But Tanika went really quiet and she wasn't talking. And she was like one wording me. And I didn't know what was happening. And I just decided in that moment, okay, I'm going to pause it. We'll try again tomorrow. No worries. You know, you kept saying to me, come back to me. Like, where have you gone? Come yeah, back like, to where me. are you? I yeah. felt, felt like you had like disappeared. And I could swear that was the moment that he did it. Yeah. I feel like you tapped into that. You felt what had just happened on a subconscious level, but your logical mind wasn't even letting you go there because it, you were trying to focus on podcasting, you yeah. know? So you were yeah. trying to be present, but something had like knocked the wind out of you. Yeah. 
and, and knowing my dad and knowing the story of that night, I think it's very possible, if not probable, that that's when he did it. I agree. It makes the most sense. I agree. It does make the most sense. Yeah. So after losing somebody in this way, after somebody takes their own life, there's so much to carry, so much to hold, so much to feel, so much to... I I mean, I don't want to say work through. I just don't know. But there are so many layers of stuff surrounding a passing like this. My dad lived a long, long life. He was 73 when he passed. My dad's name is Raj Rajendra Prasad. And he had a long and complex life. He went through many phases of his existence And he was married to my mom for 36 years and he was my father for 28 years. And he was the best dad. He was the best. He was an amazing father, but also an amazing human being. He was a pillar in our community. He was the foundation of our family. And Jesse and him had a very special relationship yeah. and my relationship with dad was the best it had ever been in fact my dad's life was the best it had ever been things were so good like my life I, I've said this to you before I've said this to you before Jesse I've said like sometimes I think my life's too perfect what's gonna happen suspiciously good suspicious I've said that's what I said <laughs> those are the words you used I yeah. use suspiciously good what's gonna happen and yeah and my dad has my dad had a lengthy mental health battle he genetically in our family through my dad's side there is most certainly mental health issues um present because I I just know a a few people on that side who struggle and my dad when he was very very young witnessed that his uncle had taken his own life he found his uncle um, and he died he chose to end his life in the same way so he carried that throughout the course of his life um that on top of a lot of difficult life experiences and just a difficult mentality um, was all a dangerous uh, mixture of, you know, things. And um, I, I knew my dad very well and I knew his pain and I knew his mentality and his darkness. And so... I always, I I knew that my dad taking his life could be a possibility, but never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that he would actually do it. Like, I know that sounds weird to say, but it actually can be like that. Like, you can know somebody wants to do it, and yet if they do it... It's still a shock. It's just the biggest shock ever. You never thought, like you thought, but you'd never, you'd never, you'd never thought. 
And unfortunately, my dad was not the kind of man who was open to getting help. He didn't believe in talking about his emotions. Yeah. He didn't believe in therapy. He didn't believe in any kind of help regarding this, you know? Yeah. And so it's been a real, it, it is, it is a very confusing space to be in. I would say, so like after the first two weeks, things got really quiet. I mean, like we were bombarded with company and family. And then literally at the start of the third week, everybody just kind of left. And me and my mom got thrust into this empty space of just her and I being alone. And my mom's my mom went through hell that night. We all did, but she really went through hell. And she um, is, you know, she's getting help. She's very open and she's doing amazingly at trying to tackle it, but she's severely traumatized. And I've, you know, I feel like I really need to take care of her. Um, and I felt that since that second week, I've just kind of stuffed it all down and I've had little moments of it coming up. But I feel really closed off. Uh, apart from this gut thing that like when I talk about it, I start trembling um, or my gut, gut starts fluttering or I get this like I've gotten really sensitive to certain things that I eat like every day. Now I can't eat them and weird things like that. But I can just feel in some moments that just below the surface, there's this well of despair and it like it scares me. It really scares me, but I have no idea what to do. Where do you begin? Yeah. Yeah. We went to a support group last night um, run by Lifeline. Um, What they do is they run one or two hour sort of workshops for people who have been through suicide and it seems that when you walk into that room, everyone there is on the same page in the sense that they have no idea where to begin. They are just filled with shock, sometimes anger, disbelief, and pain, and they don't know what to do with it. And no one does. But these people help. They give you tools. They give you um, support. You know, you can call Lifeline any time of the night in fact last week i had a moment where i was just scared i don't know why but it was late at night i thought i had the doorbell and all the hairs in my body started sticking up and i got really scared and i just called them because i didn't want to wake you up i didn't want to talk to anyone else because i know everyone's asleep and i just thought to myself i want to see if these services are good and what i can safely say is that they are good like the disclaimer Danica said in the beginning, if you or someone you know is struggling, go ahead and reach out. Standby support's open till 10 p.m. Lifeline's open 24 hours. These numbers can be found with a very quick Google search. These services, I mean, people are trained to handle these things. It's beautiful. But to come back to what you're saying, no one knows where to start. Yeah. I think you start exactly where you are, yeah. confused with, a, with too much emotion buried and with the feeling of not knowing where to start is sort of in some ironic way that's kind of where you begin yeah 
Yeah, because I mean, grief in general is just one of the most difficult experiences in life. But losing someone to te- like to, who decided to take their own life, there's just such a mir- like I keep viewing it from this perspective of like there's there's the thing there's my dad taking his own life in the center of a circle, and then there's 360 degrees of perspectives. And I in the first particularly in the first couple of weeks. I would just undulate from perspective to perspective. Like in one day, I could feel seven different ways. I could feel guilty. I could feel shocked. I could feel angry. I could feel confused. I could feel hopeless. I could feel helpless. And then sometimes you feel like I got this. And like sometimes you feel like I can do this. And sometimes you feel like I can't do this and I won't be able to do this. And there's just so much uncertainty and no closure like no closure when somebody decides to do that we're just shattered my family and I are just shattered and now we just carry this wound you know and and like I keep thinking of it like every experience of loss is a wound but this one's like a like a mangled wound and it's going to heal eventually, but it's going to be like one of those ugly wounds with scar tissue that's raised and it's like nothing's going to cover that. You know what I mean? And it's always going to feel a little funky. And Yeah, but you don't want to let that, let that define you either. Like it you does. guys have birds and you're all covered in scars anyway. So it's okay. You could add another, another invisible scar to the collection. And uh, I think that you have the belief system, the support and the open mind to actually do what it takes to work through this kind of thing. He didn't and he didn't believe in it either. And if you don't believe you can be helped, then you can't be helped. Yeah. And it's a shame. And it's probably the most awful thing anyone has to go through. Yeah. Because I was thinking about this in comparison with a lot of the average deaths, which is man goes to hospital, dies slowly over the course of three to six months because of a heart condition or cancer. I thought to myself, what's worse? They're both awful. But what's worse? And you said to me um, when you were talking about the cremation, you said that that's a particularly hard moment because that's the end of his vessel. As soon as he's put in the fire, that's it. I actually thought that moment was nowhere near as hard as seeing him on the garage floor and sitting with him there. I thought, because to me, that was the moment. And again, everyone, you know, there's no right or wrong way here. Definitely not. But to me, that was the moment. That was the actual moment where I knew he wasn't around, where I knew that he wasn't in his body. His body was just lying there lifeless and it was inoperational. And I found it so hard. And that's the moment that comes to me at night. That's the moment that keeps me awake, that I wake up and thinking about. That's the hardest moment for me personally. Mm-hmm. And then I think about him and I think about, you know, a lot of the research I, I've been doing says that suicide is the opposite of selfishness, you know, because initially people have that feeling of anger. They're like, how could he? do that how could you leave everything behind how could you do that you're so selfish you can't deal with your own pain you just give it to everyone else it's not like that because and even a friend of mine helped me understand this recently when you are in that place you're genuinely convinced 
that the world would be a better place without you. And that is, that's actually, it's not selfish. It's actually, I wouldn't say it's selfless, but it's just a tunnel vision kind of thing. It just, it just seems that he couldn't handle his pain and he didn't want anyone else to have to worry about him or it. And, um, it's too much, you know? So I also, this is kind of a silly thing to say, but like, I also think of George Costanzo. He had this, there was this one episode where he would make a joke and while everyone's laughing, he would walk out the room. That'd be his exit ending on a high ending while things are as good as they can get because he know that if he keeps talking, he'll fuck it up again. (laughs) And I thought that was an interesting perspective as well. You know, do it when everything's good. I know part of, part of the reason that my dad did it is because he felt he had reached his peak. That is the peak, isn't it? I mean, I don't see how it could have gotten any better. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, I I get that it would have been, no, I get that you can compare it to him, you know, suffering in a hospital bed for eight months and then passing in agony or something. That choice to do it, he liberated himself of his suffering. He chose to do it. I, I, I get that. But from the family's perspective, I'm not saying, you know, watching someone suffer for eight months is, it's, it's hard. I kind of watch it with, it's different. But but what you leave a family with beyond them having to watch you suffer is closure. No, it, it, it's there's no closure. What you leave your family with is just, you know, you, you I, I I totally understand and respect that he couldn't carry his pain, and I'm I'm very empathetic and I've had my own mental health struggle and I knew him inside and out and he's also half of me, so I I've. I know his pain. Like I, I, I've, I've felt it even a little bit. I, I've just, I, I can tap into it. I still can when I go to certain places in the house where I look at certain parts of his life. It, it's really hard for me because I can feel it there. But what you do is when you tap out and you say, I can't carry this pain anymore. Like I really, like I, I, I respect that. But what you do, and I'm not saying this in like a spiteful way, like what you do is you take that pain and you shatter it in amongst everybody who loved you. But it also in that amplifies it because there's just nothing. You leave them with, you just tear yourself away from them. You just tear yourself away from them. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have a note. We didn't have anything. Um, there was no information. There was nothing that No. he said. You just have that final moment with him in your yeah. brain. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's all it. it. You just have that final that's moment exactly, and yeah, it's just agonizing. It's just agonizing, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm still in it. It's just too early. We're just still in it, and today is one of my days where I just feel numb, and it's awesome <laughs> because I can function and I can. This is probably the first time I'm telling the story without feeling anything in my gut. And so I, 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 I've known that to share it on this in this space is a part of my healing journey and it feels really right to me. But I think back to yesterday and the day before where I was really suffering. I was yeah. not doing well and nothing I did help. Um, but as Jesse shared, uh, we have worked with Lifeline as of last night. Really amazing experience. Also, um, 
I've been working with an organization or I'm just new to it. I've been working with, I've contacted them once, but it's been good so far um, with an organization called standby for people who have lost somebody to suicide. And they're just absolutely amazing. And when you find those little nuggets of support, but in this situation, like suicide specific support, it's, it's really important to have that and really different when you find that, because what I've found is that, when it comes to suicide, like people don't know what to do, what to say, how to hold it. It's been a really interesting space where I've had, you know, people that I, that are normally there for me through everything have not been able to be here for me through this. People who I thought would be here for me have not been able to be here for me. People who were here initially literally tapped out they just left. They can't do it. They've stopped coming over. Certain people have stopped coming over. Some people just, they can't talk about it. They change the subject. Um, Some people try to give you words of comfort, but none of them land. I'm not saying that's everyone, but like some people, because this subject is just so complex and so different. And no one knows what to do or say. No. And there's almost nothing, I, I, I don't want to say there's nothing because there are definitely those people who have been able to be there and who have held me and who have said the right things or just held the right space. Um, and th- there are actually, there's like, there's a couple of handfuls of people that are just constantly checking in, but they're, you know, they're really there. But this is why, like, if you're, in that space, if you are suffering or anybody you know is suffering, with this kind of thing, you just don't know when the f- the switch flips. You just have no idea. I mean, my dad's case, there are so many points in his life where I could, now looking back, if I was to know that he was he had to do it, I would never have picked then. I would never have picked then. And you just can't sit on it. I mean, like, I, th- I feel like I'm speaking really like, like I'm not feeling anything right now. And I like, it's like I've said, it's just, it's beneath the surface. But like, that's really what I struggle with. Like knowing my dad had it in him and having, have been one of the only people who could have stopped him and not having stopped him. And that is something that's, is really hard to live with and that is going to be really hard for me to live with and if you have the capacity to reach out to somebody to help even if you think you're being overbearing or annoying or or you're yelling at them or you're screaming or you're frustrating them like whatever it's worth it it is because you never know when will be the last time you speak to that person you never know and uh you might catch them at a weak moment where they are vulnerable and you reaching out to them reinstills their hope for humanity. So don't sit on it. If someone you know or yourself needs support, you know, you could even reach out to Danica and I. I mean, after this situation, we are 50-fold more open to helping people with similar things. Yeah. And also passionate. We're both we're both people who love to help other people. That's just how we are. And so 
if I don't know you and I get a random message from you about something you're struggling with, I will help you out. Yeah. And so will Danica. Yeah. Because now that we know the pain of what it's like not being able to help someone who also couldn't help themselves, it's not fair that people should have to suffer in silence like that. Yeah. You know? It's really not fair. And... It has changed us. Hopefully, it's making us better. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we don't lose who we are. We still have humor. We still have a whole bunch of silliness and weirdness and everything that makes up all of us. Mm. But now we have a deeper perspective on this one topic. Yeah. And you and I, I mean, even in this podcast, are very passionate about mental health. Yeah. And we are always sharpening our tools mm. that help us battle mental health and i know it's hard to see now but i'm sure that in many ways this is giving us like we had a hammer we had a screwdriver we had all these tools but we didn't have an axe or a drill or whatever tool you want to look at now we have a drill or an axe or whichever one it is and um, we can use it to help ourselves and we can use it to help other people yeah. and we will yeah you know something like this feels like to me like an initiation yeah I keep saying you either grow or you break with something like this and I've definitely felt on the edge of both of those two things but my only choice is to grow I don't get to stay the same because I'm not the same not after this nothing in my life gets to stay the same because it's just it'll feel wrong nobody is the same now no one who was close to him can be the same after that not not to say they can't be healed. Everyone will will and can be. Yeah. Hopefully will be. But I know what you mean there. Yeah. Growing is the only option. Yeah. Really. And and you can actually open yourself up to how much growth you experience after this. And it's ongoing because the healing journey is ongoing. Um so yeah, like I know Jesse and I are gonna going to make a conscious choice to be better in my dad's honor. And knowing the faith that he had in us, you know, I know that there's a legacy to carry on here. And, and and maybe in many ways he's helping us from the sidelines. I hope so. I like to think so. And, you know, like for people who are struggling, like I know, I know that struggle. I know Jesse knows that struggle. And my dad, like, I know he never believed in his impact, in his influence and in the magnitude of people who loved him and the amount of people who, who, who felt like he was a foundation for them. If he felt and saw what came through after his passing, he never would have done it. Of course he wouldn't have. Because you just have no idea how much love people have for you and what a difference it makes with you being in the world. He just couldn't feel that love from mm. them. He just couldn't feel it. Mm. I feel like that's part of me- the mental illness. Yeah. Something is stopping you from experiencing, feeling and connecting with the love that everybody has for you. Something is severing that yeah. from being processed by you. And that is a hard place to be. Yeah. And I feel like anyone who experiences that will want to end their life that way. It just makes sense. I am grateful to myself that I 
had this perspective at my lowest point, which was, well, I can either tap out or I can radically change my existence because I don't want to be here anymore as it is. So let me radically change my existence and see if that helps. And that's always an option for you to like try something wildly different. And I don't mean like go and be wildly different. I mean, just like reach out and see what somebody can offer you. You just don't know. You just don't know when somebody could tap your heart a little and let some light in, let some love in. You never know when somebody can hold you in a space of love and make you feel that and know that it's real. So just give yourself another chance to feel loved and to feel held and just try and let let that one person in, the stranger, the friend, the, the family member, us, whoever it is, you just never know. Recently in Tim Ferriss's um, Five Blog Fridays. Five Bullet Friday. Five Bullet Fridays. Uh, he Email li- list. He, his email list. He linked a blog of a friend of his, uh, Kevin something. And, um, and this blog was 130 something life tips. And one of them that stuck with me was don't decide something for someone else. So the context was... Let's say you wanted to reach out to somebody but didn't because of some assumption that your mind told you they might think this or they might tell this person. Well, you're now making a decision on their behalf. So don't do that. Don't decide something for someone else. If you need to reach out to someone, you just do it. Let yeah. them let them make that decision. You can't make that decision for them. Yeah. It's not it's not and it's not aligned with truth. Especially when you're not in the right state of mind. Yeah. So any, anything you assume someone else is going to think is going to be clouded by whatever you're feeling. Yeah. That's such a big, important one. Um, yeah. One more thing. Just to paint a picture of how beautiful Raj is. He was the kind of person who was the first one to offer you a drink when you walk into the house, was the happiest to see any guest come through, really lit up around family. He was so festive and he had such beautiful stern values. I used to describe him as a monk, but he was, to me, he was the only monk on planet earth who didn't believe in God. Uh, He would be in bed at 9.30. At 9.29, he's closing down his iPad, standing up, walking to his room every night. And sometimes it'd be 9.32 or 9.33 and we'd make a joke and he'd be like, oh, it's time to go. And he would just, you know, he was so particular with how he was. He had figured out who he was, how he was, and what what he preferred to do. You know, this is a 73-year-old man who would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and walk four plus kilometers every single day. Even if it was raining, he would do that. One time he slipped in the rain and injured himself, but he would still do it. So the level of discipline and the level of, um, I guess, intellect and just his overall behavior and the way he was when he was alive in his body. So warm, bubbly, <sighs> hilarious, silly, yes. open-hearted. Silly as well, Loving. Yes. With kids, he was always the kid's favorite person in the room, no matter what. Yeah, they loved him. Just had this, yeah, welcoming and warm energy. Exactly. You put that so well. And um, it's really 
sad to not see him around, but it's also beautiful just to have known him, yeah. just to have known him. Even just the thought of him makes me want to be a better person yeah. because he was always being as good as he could be. And where he couldn't be better, it was his beliefs that were stopping him and not his actions. Because if his belief changed, his action would change. Yeah. His action would have changed. Um, and that is, you know, like someone put it in one of their speeches, the world lost an angel that day. Yeah. And they did. He was an angel in human form. And we had a very beautiful relationship i used to make jokes that i was his favorite child and he would never deny that and i would always do that in front of danica and, and i would uh, never deny it you know no one denied it <laughs> yeah we're just at the beginning of this journey and still processing the nightmare that you know, I think I'm starting to come away from that feeling of like, this is my life. The nightmare is my life. I'm starting to come away from that feeling kind of settling into like, okay, this is where we're at. And I know, as I mentioned, that this is a journey of initiation, certainly of transformation. And I know that a lot will awaken within me and us. And I know that there's a lot to be made of this. There's a lot to be carried on, a lot to be processed and experienced. So um, I just like to thank everybody who has reached out to share words of support, their presence, um, who have sent me flowers and gifts and messaged me and called me. And like, that's just been, it's, it means the world. And um, thank you for following along on this journey thus far. And as mentioned, this is only the beginning. So we will definitely, um, yeah, periodically be sharing where we're at with all of this. Um, but just to reiterate, we're always here for you if you need to reach out um, in any shape or form. So please do know you're loved. And you are not alone. And um, we can get through anything. We can get through anything. Because we can do it together. <laughs>